Hey there, and welcome to this bonus episode of the Andaluya podcast. As with most of our guest interviews, there is so much good content that just doesn't make it into the final cut. Please enjoy this extended interview with Carly Samick from our Inside Out episode. If you haven't listened to the episode, we encourage you to check it out. Now on to the interview. It is wonderful to have you on the show today. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for such a warm introduction. Yeah, absolutely. I know. I'm really excited. One of the things that caught my eye, well, well, all of this um, really uh, makes me excited to talk to you, but particularly the art therapy piece. Um, mm-hmm. I am an artist myself and um, really interested in counseling. I'm actually going through biblical counseling training right now to basically help like disciple others and um, give them spiritual truth, that kind of a thing. Um, But I kind of want to like marry those two together and do art therapy. And I'm so lucky to have some family friends that are art therapists and they've been kind of talking through what is art therapy and how to use it. And so, um, but it's just awesome to meet uh, someone else like that. Oh, that's so kind of you. And I'm so excited for you because I think that you're likely already doing so much of what you'll learn through kind of like counseling stratospheres, but to marry those two skills, it's going to be a really beautiful, beautiful opportunity. Mm, Yeah. I'm excited too. So, so yeah, I can't wait to see what kind of conversation we're going to have. I'm sure it's going to be fabulous today. I agree. I am. I've been very excited about talking with you for a good bit now. (laughs) And we were joking, Beck and I, um, earlier this week, and it's like, yeah, you know, it's going to be two counselors. Josh is just going to check out. And, <laughs> and, no, no, I'll, I'll interject as I can. And last interview we did, I th- and I think I wrote the interview questions this way. And so Rebecca's going to have to remind herself, okay, we would love to hear, not I. Because oh, it, makes, it makes me think it's like, yeah, Josh doesn't want to hear about any of this. I want to know that well, he doesn't. <laughs> when I do this, so for work, I work in HR right now and I do um, recruiting. Part of my job is doing recruiting. And so I'll say, you know, when I ask the people questions, I'm like, oh, well, I would love to hear more about whatever. And so I'm like, no, we, we are, we are in this conversation. <laughs> Got those like isms from your profession. Like mm-hmm. I find myself having my own little isms and Josh, similar to you, my husband's like, I know you're doing it right now. And he's like, what am I just not going to be a part of the conversation? You're just going to do your therapist thing. Um, but then he also likes to joke that I can't see into his brain because we're married. So there's no way for me to quote unquote therapize him, <laughs> which is true. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. It's much harder the closer you are to someone, I think. Yes. Um, yeah. So when I went to school for it, he was like, my brain is going to be like this invisible steel helmet. You're not going to get in. And I was like, I, you're probably right. But now <laughs> I can say with certainty, he's right. percent. <laughs> I know his heart well, but his mind is his own. Yeah. Yeah. And so often too, we try to fix ourselves and mm-hmm. we can't, we just can't because you, you know, someone else needs to come in and, and, um, to see yeah. what's going on. Um, because we're too close to the situation. Yep. I always say more distance is key. Objectivity is key. Being able to get that, like, I always think of a problem being too close to the face and we need to see it from a landscape view. Yep. I would agree with that. (laughs) Well, Carly, we want to have our audience get to know you better. So let's go ahead and get on to our interview. And Rebecca, you'll do the honors. Yeah. So first thing, um, we really just wanted to know about your upbringing and what 
this is a big question, but what shaped you into who you are today? Well, I, I think it's a beautiful question too. I'm going to do my, my best to give it justice. I, I think one of the major pieces that allowed me to sort of curate who I am today and definitely was a part of the decision-making in my profession, but also just in what I'm drawn to in the world is I am the oldest. And I really think that for me, that has played a huge part in it because from the very get-go, it was about kind of helping with my siblings or wanting to be a helper of some sort. Um, But both my parents were in the medical field. My mom in particular was a nurse practitioner in the NICU. So I grew up listening to stories of her taking care of sick babies. And so for me, just being in this role as the eldest daughter, but also coming from a family where the helping profession was kind of a part of the culture I grew up in, without really realizing it until I got quite a bit older. It's funny. It took me a bit. I'll be the first one to say these were not dots that I made connection with immediately. I actually fought it for a good while. It, it makes so much sense why I am where I am. And I went my own route with it. I didn't follow my parents or some of my other family members' choices. But I do think that, again, being the oldest of three and from a big family, I was always drawn towards helping others. And then creativity. I grew up in a household where music was really important, art was really important, and it was also really empowered. And I think those two things married together, again, are a reason why I ended up doing what I do. But again, why I'm passionate about what I, what I do in general. That is really cool. Uh, It's so funny because it sounds like we have very similar backgrounds. I'm the oldest of three. And yeah, and creativity was all in the house. And yeah, I was like, oh my gosh, you're telling me my story too. (laughs) There's something about being the oldest daughter. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think it's true for anyone in the helping profession of any sort, you know, wherever you are in the context of your family. But I can say that from my anecdotal experience, it played a big role. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, There's something about being the oldest where it's this, I don't know if it's like a biological thing, but there's definitely this unconscious um, need to take care of. I know I've found that to be true as the oldest. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Every, every stage of uh, where you are in the, the pecking order has their own unique, interesting intricacies (laughs) and tendencies. I also feel like, you know, I, I'm the first person to say every human being is unique, but it never fails to make me like giggle when I'm watching like TikTok or I'm on some kind of social media platform and you see like the generalizations about the different age where you are in chronological order. And I fit the bill of the eldest child. My little brother fits the middle child and my little sister fits the youngest child like to a T. <laughs> so it definitely played a role for me at least. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Um, so kind of looking at your, your career now, um, you've been a licensed therapist for over seven years and, uh, what made you want to really getting into, to doing therapy as a profession? You know, we talked a little bit about your, um, upbringing and being in that helping environment. Um, but yeah, expand on that a little for us. It's so it's kind of funny cause I fought it for a really long time. I was told, from a pretty young age, like late teens, early twenties, like, oh, you would be such a good therapist. You should think about counseling. And I was like, absolutely not. Never, not, not going to do it. I had this picture in my mind that a therapist is someone who's really well put together and understood the world to like every little nook and cranny and would advise people on their lives, tell them what to do essentially. And I'm like, I'm not capable of that. I'm a mess like every other person I know. So I actually went to school as an English major to start off with. I was avid reader growing up, still love to read. I I love storytelling, story making, all of that. 
Um, but I was really bored. I just didn't find myself as like interested and engaged. And so long and short through my college life. And then at this point too, I will say, I think a pivotal moment that I wasn't aware of then, but definitely was part of my decision-making going forward was my family faced a lot of mental health struggles at that point. Um, My mom, having worked in a really tough clinical setting for a long time, really struggled. And so that eldest daughter who needed to pick up and take care of things was starting to kick in. I went and saw a therapist and realized, oh, that's not what this thing is about. You don't have to know everything. She's not even telling me what to do. It just feels safe here. I feel like I have space to kind of be myself and to sort of sit with what's going on. And then second to that, I started taking psychology courses. I think I had to. It's like one of those required. And I, it was the only course I ever took that I didn't mind sitting in the library for three hours for. I was like, okay, something's here. I'm interested. Um, I still fought it for a good bit. I was like, I refuse to be a talk therapist. Again, I still think that this is a person who, must know everything under the sun, but I love art. How could I marry the two? And that's when I started researching art therapy and found my way in that direction. You know, the story from there basically evolves. I got myself into the world of counseling. Um, I became more invested in Boston, which is where I went to school at Leslie University, which is like the birthplace of expressive therapy. They do everything from play to drama therapy to art therapy, some music therapy options. Um, And that's when I found myself in clinical spaces. I never expected to like inpatient hospitalizations, never expected to go there. Um, And then found my way also into these non-for-profits working with young men coming out of probation or young women who are um, in substance disorder uh, group homes. And I've just sort of been finding spaces that I was drawn to ever since in the mental health field. Interesting. And how did, how did you find the clinical field? Um, Were you drawn to that or you're like, "Mm, maybe not clinical, maybe in a different setting? I pictured myself not in clinical. I, I, as, as we might start to notice, I never pictured what I actually ended up doing. I always <laughs> thought it was going to be this and it ended up being that. So I started off in a, a setting, uh, the school I went to, Leslie, again, has this really impressive format for their undergraduate counseling degree where you actually do have to go do internships, which is pretty unique. You don't usually get to do that in undergrad courses. Um, so the first one I did was actually an art non-for-profit for young men and women. And I loved that, but I was also recognizing through this work that I was super interested in trauma work and in depression and in anxiety and family systems. And so it came time for my like senior level internship. And I had done enough work at that point that they told me I had kind of like some really cool, but intense centers I could go work at. So some of them were like Mass General or Boston Children's, but I found this one psychiatric hospital. I was like, I got to go check this out. This is all children children and adolescents here? What does that look like to have these young people, these young humans in a hospital space for mental health? And so uh, I applied and interviewed and found myself there and kind of didn't look back for probably about five or six years, almost six, six-ish, seven-ish years that I was in inpatient or intensive uh, outpatient care. Wow. That's a long time. And what a, a unique opportunity, I think, to be with adolescents, um, particularly those because you have a chance to help to steer them in the right direction. Um, you can do that for anyone, obviously, but but what a beautiful experience for, for younger. Oh, you named it. That was what drew me to it and kept me there. I felt like I was planting seeds with these humans, but also they were changing me. 
working with adolescents or young kids, even as you know, an adult person, it changes your lens. The world gets bigger again, because us adults, we tend to get kind of a little, we get some blinders on and we get really hyper-focused on things. And to some degree we need to, but you know, I think it's, um, I'm totally blinking on who I'm quoting in the next moment, which is not great. I want to say it's speaking of my old English major self. Um, I want to say it's Thoreau that said that you have to see maybe Emerson, you have to see the world through a child's eyes to see the magic in it. And even these kids who were in some of the worst mental health crises of their life, you know, at 15, 16, 12, um, you know, I've worked with even younger are hospitalized away from their family, dealing with really serious mental health conditions. They were still seeing magic. And so I just wanted to add to that. And our therapy was a big part of that too. Yeah. Particularly to be able to enter into that space as an art therapist. Yeah. That's really, really cool to be able Mm -hmm. to do that. Oh yeah. No, it was some of my most favorite work I've ever done without a doubt. And where are you now in your work? Um, So you said you did that for six or seven years or something. And how did you transition out of that? Yeah, absolutely. So I was in Boston for several years and then ended up coming. I live in upstate New York. Um, If you're familiar with like Albany, where the capital is, I'm about an hour north of that um, and found myself going back to school. Uh, I looked to see what I could do with my undergraduate career. And it was just very clear and evident that to really be a therapist and to do the kind of more intense clinical work I wanted to do one-on-one with people, I really needed to get that master's degree. So I went to UAlbany for that. And through UAlbany, I was able to secure an internship at one of the largest uh, inpatient children and adolescents programs. So the previous program I worked with, the youngest we worked with was 12. This program was four to 18. So it was a much larger and broader age grouping. Uh, So I interned there for a year and I was very lucky that they picked me right up and I worked there through the majority of the pandemic. Um, You know, it was, again, some of the most profound work I got to do. I also started dabbling in what's called intensive outpatient settings. Um, So you're not, it's not a once a week thing. It's more like several days a week, almost like it's a bit of your job. Your mental health is your job. So I got very proficient in group running through that and programming and things like that. Due to the end of 2020 into 2021, you know, everyone had had probably one of the longest years of their life at that point. And for me, that was the case too. My family sustained a lot of loss. I just realized that I wanted something more clinically. I needed to branch out. Um, and so I was looking through professions that I felt like met where I was at clinically and that would grow me. And that's how I ended up at no CD. So at No City, we treat obsessive compulsive disorders and other compulsive disorders. Um, so I'm specifically trained in ERP, which you referenced earlier, which is the golden standard and exposure, or it's called exposure response, and it's the golden standard for OCD. Interesting. So tell us a little bit more about that. Um, would you call it EMP? E- no. ERP, very ERP. close. Yeah. EMP so is so very so different. different. Yeah, EMP is what we don't want to have happen. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so it's a it's a style of therapy, and and it's considered under the behavioral. So there's there's all these different therapy modalities, but there's a big behavioral umbrella, and these are kind of considered the more peer reviewed, empirically valued therapies to some degree. Although I think all modalities are very valued. Um, this is all to say that exposure is a little bit more unique because other behavioral therapies focus a lot on better understanding your thoughts and actions and feelings and how they all interconnect. It can be a lot of self-processing and self-reflection. ERP goes a different route. It goes action first, reflection after, because compulsive disorders have this cycle in which a person has an overreaction to threat. Their brain overly reacts to threats use thoughts particularly as threats. 
And with that, they start doing compulsions. That's where the compulsive stuff comes from. Um, and this is not what people see on TV necessarily. OCD is a very misunderstood and, and often, um, unfortunately, stereotype disorder. It's not just cleaning. It's not orderly. These are individuals who have really intense taboo thoughts they don't want to have. They're intrusive. Um, and so to manage the fear and the discomfort around that, they do compulsions. And so exposure works to help them not do compulsions and actually lean into the discomfort by way of exposures, these very creative, this is where my art therapy comes in really nicely, lots of creative work there. And through that, they build a tolerance for how scary those thoughts feel so that they can change the way that they behave, but also the way they view them. Lives a much more free life with that. That's awesome. Um, that sounds uh, somewhat similar. So in my biblical counseling training that we're doing, uh, or I am doing. Yeah. It's only we in the sense that I'm supporting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we see you, Josh. We know you're here. <laughs> hey, surprise. <laughs> but yeah, you're going to talk about the uh, plumb line, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there's this tool called, um, God's plumb line that we see. Use. I listen. You do. So it's a basically where you you're trying to retrain your brain from the the negative thoughts, um, and so you have like a piece of paper that's um, landscape, and there's a line in the center, and underneath that, that's where you have the lies and the deception and the stinking thinking, if you will. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, so it takes you through this process of okay, what are your behaviors? Um, you, that's pretty easy to see. What are some emotions going on? What are your general thoughts happening in this situation? Um, and then what does that say about you as a person? I am what? Because it's telling you something about yourself. And then mm -hmm. from there, from the spiritual perspective, it's saying you're believing something about God here um, that's a lie. What is it? God is what in this situation to you? And, um, so then, so we take all of that information and then on top of that, we start with the God is, and it's like, okay, well, we know God is faithful. He's not unfaithful or he is whatever it is that, and you kind of combat whatever the lie is on the bottom. Um, so it helps to retrain your brain, um, kind of like this exposure therapy, a little different. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but similar in the way that it, it's mm -hmm. all about that retraining of this like yeah. habitual thinking that's not helpful. Right. Exactly. It's not. And yeah, if you can retrain your brain to think in a different way and to have more positive thoughts or a positive response, um, mm -hmm. then the better off you'll be. Yeah, no, absolutely. It sounds, yeah, it's super similar in the way that we are, we are essentially what I tell people all the time is we're making new pathways. Yeah. You've been going through this pathway for a good while and it's not leading you anywhere well. And it's, it's only actually got like treacherous things on the pathway. So it's going to feel uncomfortable for a good bit. I refer to, you're going to be bushwhacking through the woods for a good while before the trail makes sense. We're going to create this new pathway for your brain. Yeah, absolutely. I was actually just telling someone the other day, um, I'm pretty sure like in like science tells us that in your brain, you're, you create these pathways yes. and yeah. So, and then to create, to do something new, you're going off that pathway and creating a new neuro pathway. And it takes a while to go over and over and over and over to make that pathway stick and be deep. Oh, you could. Yeah. yeah you got to right on the nail. This is what I bring mm -hmm. up constantly with specifically individuals that are new to therapy, but new clients of my own as well. And I'm a nature walker, like to the T I love hiking too. And so anyone who's ever been on a trail that's not readily used knows that it's kind of twisty and turny and you're always looking for the marker. It's very disconcerting at first to make these new neural pathways. 
But what's really cool is that our brain is so adaptable. Even as we get older, we not everyone always thinks that that's the case, but we are quite adaptable. So the more you can use these more, excuse me, new skills, the easier it gets. Yeah, it does. And it takes time. Uh, yeah, when I'm telling people like it's not going to happen tomorrow or even a month from now necessarily, um, it just takes time. This is a long journey ahead. Yeah, yep. big misconception, I would say, not necessarily about therapy in general, but I think that people are always looking for a, what's going to be the quick fix. And so I'm not always their favorite person. I'm like, <laughs> a little longer than that, a little longer, but worthwhile, very worthwhile. Yeah, I think that's a societal thing too, you know? It's we all want that instant gratification. Yeah. Um, There's a um, comedian by the name of uh, Taylor Tomlinson, and she has a uh, Netflix special out called um, Quarter Life Crisis. Um, and she talks about therapy, mental health, in a way that's really engaging and really hilarious. Um, she says at one point that she went to her therapist, and um, her therapist came back with well, you know, this is this is what's going on. This is like the core issue. And Taylor, being the comedian, says, oh, so I'm fixing that? It's like, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. You, you just, you need to come back. It's like, well, honey, this is just for your credit card. <laughs> it's like, well, uh, I, it's like uh, how, how, uh, well, how long is that? I, I, I don't know. You're just worrying the payment and we'll keep doing it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. No, that's so the truth. Yeah. I think she also said in there, um, Oh, one of the things she said was, you know, people think that have all these misconceptions about therapy and they think that when you go, it's the therapist saying you suck. But in reality, it's you sitting in the chair telling them that I suck. Yes. (laughs) I'm like, well, watch this. It sounds like a fabulous special. It is. Yes. Yes. It's a constant battle me going. I refuse to let you talk crap about my client right now, aka themselves. Um, and I do, I think that, you know, somewhere in my misconception that I'm going to walk in and this person is going to tell me everything I'm doing wrong, or, you know, is going to somehow know exactly what I'm supposed to do. It's just, it's not that it's a safe place. It's a safe place to explore and to be yourself and get to know what that actually means. Um, grow, change, all those things. Yeah, exactly. I love it. I know that's one of the reasons why I'm, I know we're so excited about doing this mental health um, month for in participating in mental health awareness because um, so many people do have those misconceptions. They just don't understand what it really is and how helpful it can be. Right. And uh, Carly, from your professional opinion, uh, we know that mental health has been around for ages and ages, but do you think with the pandemic that started in 2020, do you think the awareness or the need for it has been more heightened since that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, just to kind of give more of like a statistical perspective, I, I think generally speaking, there's something like a two month wait list right now on average for most private practice therapists, which was just never the case before. Um, so, you know, there's more need for therapy in schools and different medical institutions, just private practice for families. Uh, the pandemic really brought to the surface a lot was maybe uh, systems that were not helpful to begin with, but then kind of put some fire underneath it. So, yeah, I would say that the need has gone up drastically. And, you know, the stigma around it or people actually seeking out the care that that's getting better. But I think there's still a lot of work to be done. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned that your your foundation as a therapist um, earlier had to do with art and expressive therapy. Um and the different, all the different types of expressive therapies that are out there. I'd love for you to, we, 
I, we would love to. Where do you, where do you both want to know? (laughs) Yes. Have you elaborate a little more on the different types of therapies that are out there? Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So I was very drawn to art therapy from the get-go because I found so much solace in doing art. Um, you know, I never considered myself an artist and I think that that's something that society also is not always, um, exposed to enough. So for instance, I grew up going to public schools and in art programs, it was kind of like, you're either really good and they push you in the direction of these APR courses, or you're like kind of the average, like I was. And they're like, oh, if you wanted to keep going with this, that's fine. But there was like no empowerment. There wasn't also like reach of and look at all the places it could go for you too. So it was something I did kind of as a hobby. And then I just happened to kind of get kind of decent at it too. So there was this two-way street at one point in my life where I remember my parents and I was kind of in the midst of deciding, am I going to go the therapy mental health counseling route or am I going to do something that's more like graphic design? And I decided I can't let art be my job solely or I'll hate it. I will resent it because it has so been my therapy and I need to follow that. Um, And so that's essentially what I did. What happened that sort of changed the route of my journey, I guess you could say, is that once I got out to school at Leslie, I got to immerse myself in so many amazing art courses and expressive therapy courses. And they were the foundation to which I grew myself as a therapist, but I also got exposed to all the other forms of therapy and all the other ways that one can be a therapist. And so I often think of it as I got a really great foundational degree in counseling, both in my undergraduate and my graduate career. And I've just garnered these toolkits that I keep kind of taking everywhere. Expressive therapy, art therapy was my first toolkit. Um, I would say from there, I've really also garnered a lot of like more holistic, um, somatic mindfulness type toolkits. Aside from my therapy work, I also do some restorative yoga teaching. Um, I'm a Reiki one uh, or level one master. So I have a very uh, sort of rooted sense in mindfulness. And then I found myself in these more empirically uh, studied and trained therapies like ERP, CBT, positive psych. And so these are all the little toolkits that I take at the end of the day, though. When I'm in session with someone, I'm meeting them where they're at. If they are of interest when it comes to art therapy, we go that direction. If they are someone who really likes structure and like knowing exactly what they're doing, we might go a little of this. Or in a given session, we'll do a little bit of everything. Um, But yeah, so expression therapy definitely for me was both a love and a passion. And it taught me how someone can be healed through art. And that just, I mean, I have everything to thank for that because that's what got me on the journey to becoming a therapist itself. Yeah. It's interesting too, you, um, you're using art therapy and expressive therapy, uh, therapy interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Um, is there, is that the same or is there a little bit of a difference? Great question. So it really depends state to state. So for instance, when I was an undergraduate um, out in Massachusetts and Boston, the state of Massachusetts was starting to look at changing the language around the licensing from art therapist to expressive therapist, and they were going to change some of the education. Um, So I would say that uh, I would probably generally speaking, most people would refer to themselves as the specific modality that they were taught in. So art therapy, play therapy, music therapy. But if you're someone who had to take kind of like a smattering of those things, you could say that you were trained kind of uh, specialized in expressive therapy. Many art therapists probably refer to themselves as expressive art therapists because that is their licensing name as well, too. Very interesting. Yeah, I like how there's different kinds of expressive therapies. Um, Yeah, it was it was really cool. I got to 
um, go to a um, convention workshop. Thank conference, you, Josh. Somewhere. <laughs> I was like, what's that word? Um, yeah. So got to go to a workshop that specialized or really looked at um, art therapy and music therapy in um, Alzheimer's patients or patients with Alzheimer's. And it was really, really interesting. I think most of the room of people that were there were art therapists. So there weren't many questions after we went over art therapy. But when we got to music therapy, the whole room had so many questions. Um, So it was really interesting to get to hear more about some of the different therapies um, that are out there and how impactful it can be. And that particularly for music, it's not just play a song and see how you feel or whatever. It's way more detailed than that. So much more. And, you know, to your point, again, and misconceptions about therapy, you know, the picture that most people have in their head is laying on a couch and some therapist taking notes and like feeling very analyzed. And I would say the majority of therapists don't do things like that anymore. We've just, we've evolved and there, and there's Zoom. So that's just not kind of the lay of the land. But I think that one of the things that for me is really important in terms of the advocacy I do related to mental health is helping people to learn that there are so many kinds of therapy, that some are actually better for some conditions than others, and that there's options. It's not a one size fits all. You really can kind of look around and see who and what kind of therapy is going to be a best fit for you. Yeah, absolutely. So looking more at your specialty that you, you've you ended up going into OCD, and mm-hmm. we would love to hear a little bit more about why you chose that specialty. So it started with me being really curious about NoCD, the program that I work for, and how spot on I felt they were with defining OCD. I just felt like in my time in hospitals, I was seeing so many people come through with these ruminative, ruminative, perseverative, obsessive, compulsive type experiences. And it wasn't general anxiety. It wasn't depression. It wasn't trauma. They could recognize the illogical nature of their thoughts and how they were responding to them, but it was like they were stuck on this hamster wheel. They couldn't get off of it. And it was debilitating for many of them. But often it was about things like self-harm or these intrusive sort of taboo thoughts, um, or it was something related to weird or what would be maybe considered weird or like kind of out there behaviors. And so doctors, therapists alike who really weren't well knowledgeable in what OCD is would call it, oh, this is general anxiety. And maybe they're on the spectrum or something like that. They just started putting them in boxes. And so as I started looking for more work that was outside of the hospitalization space, no CD had the definition that I had been seeing and treating for so long. And so I got curious in that respect. As I learned more about ERP, the exposure response therapy, I was hooked because in essence, what my clients do every single day, what anyone living with OCD who's using ERP is doing every day is leaning into uncertainty and learning how to live in a much more cohesive and kind manner with fear. And I found that to be such a brave thing to be with someone in therapy and say, I know this is one of your worst fears. I know that this is something that is incredibly terrifying. And they, they're going to lean into it because that's the way that they're going to expand their tolerance. Um, I found that to just be so profound. And it's what keeps me like super, super involved in the community. Wow. That's awesome. That's, that's really great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So not sure if this, if you can talk about this or, um, but we did, we were curious to see um, or to hear some, some feedback that you've gotten for your clients, uh, mm-hmm. from your clients that you've worked with 
on how your um, working with you has helped them or um, made their life better? Well, I love that question. Um, I am like so blessed. I am so blessed and so grateful and so honored to have like the best clients in the whole wide world. Like I, I don't say that like generally speaking, I like it's specific, it's meant, it's it's emboldened. These are just incredible people. And they often will say to me, oh my gosh, Carly, thank you so much. And I'm not saying this just to kind of be humble. So you did it. I just handed you some things. You know, I listened and we created some stuff together. And then I handed you this stuff. And all actuality, let's say I see a person one hour a week. I'm one hour of 168 hours a week of their life. They could take what I give them and do nothing with it. Nothing's going to change. So really often the feedback I get starts with, I'm so happy and grateful and I feel like I have more freedom in my life. And and I would say kind of generally speaking, that's the biggest feedback I get. I have my life back and it's better than it was pre-therapy, but also even sometimes pre-OCD becoming bad. But then what ends up being the more um, long-term discussion is that they did it, that I just got to join for the ride, which is like the coolest thing ever. Um, But yeah, generally speaking, they feel more free and then they start to recognize that I'm only an hour of their week, which means they did the thing. Yeah, which empowers them even more to say, wow, I did this thing. You know, I can continue on even if we're not meeting anymore. I can still do it and it's it's going to be good. Right. It's kind of like other professions like teacher, coach, anything like you get them the tools. It's up to them to put in the work. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I don't think everyone always thinks about that. And as in relation to therapy, but literally this is one of my open lines, like opening lines with any new client. And that is, I want to become useless. Eventually. I, I want to be useless because they are so proficient at their skills and at managing through life with OCD that I'm really just a supporter of sorts. And, you know, particularly for those living with OCD, it causes a person's world to become so small. So I would say, generally speaking on a bigger map, one of the most common things we hear at OCD is my, my world is big again and it's bigger than I could have expected, which is like the most gratifying thing to hear. Yeah, I know. That's like, uh, it warms your heart to know that, yeah, the work that you're doing is helping someone truly like life impacting. Um, that's really, really cool. Um, so earlier we were kind of talking more about uh, the expressive therapy and the different types um, on a bit of a, a bit of a lighter note. I mean, it's all been pretty light, but, um, we've seen some of your TikToks, uh, which is so fun. So do you believe that this is, um, or could be used as a form of expressive therapy? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, so again, in a, in another turn of events could have never guessed that I would ever be on TikTok or that I would ever create an Instagram or anything like that. And I give a lot of credit to NoCD, the program that I work for. Um, not only is it a program that wants to genuinely advocate and educate and, and help this community of individuals living with OCD and compulsive disorders get seen, um, I think probably for the first time ever, but they're also a lot about therapists advocating and being creative with how they advocate and educate. So I feel like the TikTok work that I do, so much of it, and Instagram, so much of it is education, trying to make sure that people have clinically determined, not anecdotal, like this is just, you know, my life and how I felt through therapy, which don't get me wrong. I think that is really important stuff that needs to be out there too. But I want people to have 
genuine education coming from the world of ERP trained and specialized therapists so that they have all of the information. So in so many ways, yeah, I think that education is therapy and it's power. So absolutely. Yeah. That's so cool. I I love that there's, um, different platforms that we can utilize to educate and, um, to give empowering information to, to people. Mm -hmm. I, I do think that that's one of the most like best uses for social media in so many ways. I mean, <laughs> we can be talking about therapy or we can be talking about all of the house do-it-yourselves that I've learned in the last <laughs> talk or Instagram. It's just a really beautiful way to share information and teach others and empower others. So yeah, I was never expecting to have any of those things, but I do think my art therapy kicks in when I'm creating these things because I'm thinking about it from an expressive arts perspective. How can I get this message across in a creative, uh, artistic expressive manner. And, um, it's been very fun. Very, very fun. That's awesome. Yeah. But fun, fun for you and fun for people watching. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely post it. And then I walk away from my phone for about two hours. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, <laughs> I'm 30. And never did I think I'd be learning how to do TikToks, but here we are. Here we are. <laughs> now I, now I have a question for those of us who are not in the art therapy or learning about it. Is art therapy strictly just painting or does it encompass all of the um, other art avenues, music and um, video production, all, all that stuff? Um, either of you can contribute to that. Beautiful question. Um, so I would say that traditionally art therapy usually encompasses more um, like hand or like body informed arts. So this would be painting, clay, pastels, chalk, charcoal, anything that you're drawing, painting, creating with your hands. Um, but also I think that is now going outward to digital format too. Um, you know, when I was in school, this is like earlier 2000s, that was just kind of coming into the world of art therapy because obviously digital work is becoming just more accessible and like the tablets you can use to create on all that stuff. So I would say that probably traditionally falls under the realm of art. And then you have like play therapy. So this is doing tactile, um, like physical play. Um, And then also drama therapies. This would be theatrics, actually using like theater and acting as a form of expressive therapy. And then music is any form of music. But as we kind of talked about, none of these things are straightforward. None of these things are just like, you're going to go paint a picture today and your whole week is going to be better. (laughs) Theory, uh, it's emotional, it's creative, it's cathartic. Um, There's there's so much unique measures that's that's taken into why a person is doing the project or the therapy that they're doing in that moment. And, And that therapist is trained to better be able to allow that to happen. Yeah, exactly. The only thing, um, that was a perfect explanation, which makes (laughs) sense that you would, (laughs) but the, yeah, the other thing I would add to that is that, um, what I've heard from, um, the people that I'm in contact with who are art therapists, um, when I asked a lot of questions about what really is this? Like, yeah, you create art. Okay. But like, what else is, is it like a conversation that you have? What? And so they explained it like, you know, you are a counselor when you're an yes. art therapist, hundred yeah. percent. You have those conversations with people. It's just yeah. that you have, um, it's almost like from my experience, I don't know, a thought question, I guess, or a, a prompt. There we go. A prompt, yeah. um, for tell me about a time when you, 
uh, your happiest memories when you've had coffee. And you're like, oh, okay. So draw that out, have coffee. What does this mean to you? And, you know, well, some of my happiest times with coffee is when I'm with Josh and um, and we get to have that intimate conversation and just be with each other. And so you can have then a conversation about, um, okay, well, well, how, what else is going on there? You know? Um, yeah. So all of those things, and it can be very emotional. Oh, I'm so happy you brought that up. Yeah. So any, any person who is under the realm of, and also like another form of therapy I haven't even brought up is like equestrian therapy. So you're actually working with horses and people and doing therapy in that matter. I can't speak a lot to that because I only know a little bit. I'd love to learn more because it just, to me, seems like another amazing modality, but it's rather than just having talk as the form of connection, you have these other avenues you can take. And so whether that be art or music or play, it's allowing that person to meet themselves where they're at with more than just vocabulary. And, you know, for some people that's really necessary. Talk therapy is just not the best way for them to process and reflect. Maybe they need to start with something that's more expressive to gain that awareness, to gain that insight, to gain that vocabulary, and then speak it out. Yep. I love it. And um, Carly, you brought um, art therapy branch out into digital markets. Um, I was I, we talked about this um, not on the podcast, but you and I um, separately, um, aside from um, any past recordings. But there is this thing I guess by Google called the uh, the tilt brush, and it uses like VR. And you can create all these things like with the handles and everything. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to touch on this uh, briefly um, because I, VR is making its way or has made its way into therapy and clin- clinician uh, settings. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I know a lot of the issues with like dementia patients. And uh, I'm just not sure how widely that's being used. I'm so excited to see where VR is going to take kind of the therapy space in general. So I can speak to a little bit of what I know, both in in my space as an OCD specialist or compulsive disorder specialist and also PTSD. Those are two spaces I'm super aware of how VR is kind of starting to be integrated. So with exposures, um, this is a curated activity exercise that a person I'm working with is doing to, again, lean into the discomfort. So just to give kind of a simple um, example, harm OCD is super, super common. And this is the fear that I am either going to harm someone else or they're going to harm me or something bad is going to happen. And so let's say a person I'm working with is really triggered by being around knives because they're so concerned. They're, They're having these intrusive thoughts that, oh gosh, what if I hurt myself with this knife? VR is an excellent avenue to be able to have a person feel so realistic to being in person, what we would often refer to as an in vivo exposure in real life exposure without it actually being in real life. So for phobias like heights, I can't always get on a really tall building with my clients. So this is going to be an excellent avenue. Um, It's definitely becoming more used and more researched Uh, for veterans. That's another space where we're seeing VR becoming more and more used for trauma care, being able to, um, again, increase tolerance. So prolonged exposure is a form of trauma care. So is EMDR, things like that. And VR is definitely going to become more and more utilized. I mean, that's, that's fantastic. Just seeing all these new technologies being um, used in the way that they are uh, to be helpful and not just for um, entertainment purposes, I guess. Oh, absolutely. And I think even, you know, what I do every single day, I'll be honest, again, another space where I was like, never will I ever. And then I did. 
when I was in grad school learning about teletherapy, whether it be by phone or computer, I was like, nope, I want to create the therapy space and I need to be in person with someone to create that therapeutic alliance. Well, past Carly was wrong. Accountability <laughs> <laughs> for that. I think that the, I actually think that I probably do some of my best work as an exposure response therapist because I'm online with someone because I can pull up images. We can look at videos. We can right. create one another. And so technology has become ridiculously useful in the therapy world. That's that, 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 that's wonderful. And I think a lot of people underestimated teletherapy when the <laughs> pandemic hit, because Carly, just like you said, no, we need to be in person. We need to be face to face. We need to see each other. But then 2020 hit and that just changed everything from, you know, doctor's offices, therapy sessions, workspaces. It just changed the whole game. Thousand percent. And, you know, many of us, myself included, went in completely uncertain of what this was going to allow for. And even as I joined OCD, now going from full time in person basically to full time virtual, it was a lot of uncertainty for me. And I will say that I, first off, one of the major reasons I love this is accessibility. I have so many clients that I work with right now who live in really desolate areas and like very high up in New York state, or they're down in the city. I wouldn't be able to work with them. Otherwise it's this beautiful way that I can now outreach further. So, you know, and, and the, the fact of the matter is I have some of the most profound therapy work that I've done and it's been done via zoom. Um, you know, you can have a great therapist in person, you can also have a crappy therapist in person. You can have a great therapist via Zoom. You can also have a crappy therapist via Zoom. Like, that's just kind of how it goes <laughs> no matter what you're talking about. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And Josh, uh, the virtual uh, exposure thing. Um, so I thought of this while Carly was talking a moment ago. Uh -huh. um, an example in animation of using VR as exposure therapy would be in uh, Sword Art Online oh, Season yes. 2. Um, and, uh, it's the gun gale online and I forget her name, the girl with the blue hair, I think, mm -hmm. um, she is, she, she like accidentally shot someone with a gun, um, defending people around her. And she was horrified from then on to, to even touch a gun. And so mm -hmm. she used this, uh, video game that was like an all immersive, um, mm -hmm. video game that she was able to shoot guns and with that exposure therapy start to get a little bit better in real life um, with holding guns. That's an interesting point. I mean, uh, gosh, I didn't even think about that coming from SAO. Yeah, I know. Surprising, but, um, but yeah. It, <laughs> Enemy really strikes again. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, honestly, I use so many TV shows, anime cartoons. I mean, I use so much material from, a more entertainment, quote unquote, basis for the therapy that I do, because these are expressions of what a person might be fearful of in their actual life. And so, again, it's another way to lean that closely into the discomfort and increased tolerance. And OCD is historically known as the doubting disorder. There's uh, references as early as I think it's the 1400s. They found literature where uh, psychologists or doctors are referring to someone who just can't get the doubts down. They're just constantly doubting. So these exposures are a way that we can increase our understanding that doubt is always going to be a part of life. Uncertainty is always going to be a part of life, but it's our ability to continue on and not become stuck in it. Right. Absolutely. Agree with that.